Welcome to the Somerset Emotional Wellbeing Podcast. My name's Dr. Andrew Trasilla, a GP in Somerset, working for NHS Somerset, and I'm joined by my colleague and friend, Dr. Peter Bagshaw, also a GP and NHS Somerset Mental Health Lead. And we're really pleased to welcome another colleague and friend, Dr. Steve Holmes. Steve, hello. Hello, lovely to be here and uh, really looking forward to a chance to have a chat with, with two esteemed colleagues. Can I say, Steve, it's a particular pleasure to have you on because you were the person I turned to when I came down with COVID right at the beginning of the pandemic. And you gave me rather rather scary, but very wise and uh, 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 sensible advice. So thank you. Uh, I just slightly worry about the fact that we've called each other esteemed colleagues and that we've put ourselves neatly on a pedestal. Um, but uh, listeners, I hope you don't think we're on a pedestal. We're trying to give you truth and an, and an interesting um, discussion. And our topic this week is living well with respiratory disease. So, Steve, before we start on the topic, just tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do and how you've come to do it, please. Okay, I've got a, a strong Somerset background. I've worked as a GP in Shepton Mallet for more than 20 years. Um, I've worked with a variety of the um, ICB, CCG, PCT, PCG, and all those other developments that have occurred in the NHS over the last 25 years or so. Um, and clinically, I'm doing the normal day job, but I also have a respiratory interest, um, which has helped me a lot through my career. And I've also had a medical education interest. Um, so I think I think that's probably about right. I, I, I trip around a little bit. I enjoy listening to what people do. I think you're underselling yourself there, Steve. I mean, you are a, a national expert in uh, respiratory medicine, aren't you? Um, I, I never think of that of me as an expert. I know a lot of the national experts. I get on well with them, but I never see myself as an expert because I'm always learning. And I think that's probably true of many of us. I, th I would, uh, if I could put it more politely, Steve, you're a national authority. I personally find the word expert slightly worrying because I have a couple of side interests and one or two people have tried to say, oh, Andrew, you're a bit of an expert. Well, I heard once that uh, X is an unknown quantity and a spurt is a drip under pressure. So I, I do worry about it when I'm, I'm anybody suggests that there might be any expertise involved. That's that's interesting. I, my, my hearing on that was, uh, I think many of us in both nursing, general practice and management are experts in terms of the definition, which is expertise starts where guidelines finish. And so often in the NHS, we have guidance which is so specific to one condition, it's not particularly applicable to a real person. Whereas, and all the time, we have to make out that sort of thing of what's right for the patient, what is the evidence, and actually what do they want to do as well? Absolutely. I'm so looking forward to this um, discussion because it's it's not about a disease that one person has in isolation. It's about the person. It's about living with it. And it's about living with respiratory disease. And of course, there may be comorbidities. We may have age issues and, and others. Take us away. What would you like? What do you think is important for us to know? I guess the first thing to think through is when we think about respiratory disease, a lot of emotions can come into that. Now, sometimes it's, oh, I had asthma as a child, or I know people with asthma or other chronic lung diseases like COPD. Sometimes it's a much more negative feeling about this is caused by people who choose to smoke and people who choose to smoke will end up with lung disease and it's their fault really. And that to me is a very wrong attitude. 
that we need to think through. Uh, quite a lot of us will have felt breathless at times, one of the key symptoms of respiratory problems. Um, I've been up at altitude a few times and suddenly find that whereas I can walk 25 miles fairly comfortably up and down hills, at altitude, walking half a mile or walking up a couple of flights of the stairs actually makes me severely breathless, something I wouldn't get on a day's walking. So there's that symptom that we feel at times. And we've all been breathless if we've exerted ourselves, I hope, at times. Similarly, cough. Don't we all have cough? Um, part of life is having a cough at different times, sometimes with an acute infection, sometimes the natural response to clear our throats. And over the last two or three years, many of us have been a bit panicky when we've had a coughing spurt in our local supermarket because it might just be perceived as though we might have one of those dreaded infections. And I'm really interested you say that, Steve. I think that's a great start. Feeling breathless in particular, something I experienced after COVID when my oxygen levels went way down. And it's different from, say, having a a pain in a joint or something like that. It's quite scary, isn't it? It feels like you, you know, you you might not be around. Uh, and that must cause a lot of distress to people. Is that something you see a lot? Yes, I, th I think probably any clinician will see that a lot. And any patient who has breathlessness will get that sensation uh, on, on a regular basis. It's really um, hard when you've when you feel as though you can't do something that you have been able to do before to adjust to that. And it's not surprising that people feel more tense. And when you feel more tense, you often breathe a little bit quicker. And when you start breathing quicker, that gives you the sensation of being more breathless again. And then you're right, the breathing is getting worse and you get into that horrible cycle of things escalating. But I think one of the, one of the key things I remember was thinking um, when I was, feeling particularly breathless, whereas normally I'm, I'm walking about in, enjoying things, walking about quite quickly and uh, wouldn't mind sort of running off somewhere. I suddenly thought if someone um, stole my wallet and just walked off quickly, I would just wave and say, well, I'm not going to be able to chase you. It's yours, um, and which is a strange situation to be in. Interesting. So we've talked a little bit about breathlessness and a little bit about cough. Are there any other respiratory symptoms that we should think about or be aware of? Any red flag ones or, or just general ones? Yeah, so so again, respiratory symptoms, like many organs of the body, are often quite distinct. Some people will will complain of tiredness more than breathlessness. Some people complain of breathlessness more than tiredness. A lot of people will complain of um, an irritating cough or different types of cough. And then you get to sputum, which would be the other, the, the other key symptom or spit or phlegm. And obvious red flags about the sudden nature of onset, about um, things like coughing up blood. But again, if you think about it, the commonest symptom to present in primary care is a respiratory symptom. Many of those are acute respiratory, upper respiratory type symptoms. Um, but there are quite significant numbers of people who get lower respiratory symptoms, pneumonia, that sort of thing. So plenty of differences around how somebody might have a what they perceive as a, a respiratory symptom. And you've mentioned red flags, and maybe this is a good time, although we focus on the emotional side of things, just to bring in what red flag respiratory symptoms should people watch out for? What things should make them go and see their doctor, apart right. from coughing up blood that you've mentioned? So I think 
persistent symptoms that are new, be that breathlessness or cough. Certainly coughing up blood is not a normal type of symptom that we would expect. Um, a lot of the symptoms we get with a normal cough cold, if they're ongoing and they're starting to make us not want to eat, so we're, we're becoming relatively anorexic, if you like, losing our appetite, we might be losing weight, would be other triggers to do that. Um, so it's, it's often a, a question of those symptoms, breathlessness, cough, spit, with other symptoms brewing up that are persisting that should warrant us to, to at least make contact with a healthcare professional and for healthcare professionals to think through what else might we want to do. So that's the urgent and important ones that are looking for for serious or, or um, important urgent disease that we've talked about. But um, how will the professional take more of a history? What other things are, are important in looking? Because coming along with cough or breathlessness, the differential diagnosis is potentially huge in the first place. Yeah. And I, and I think a lot of people will be thinking, healthcare professionals will be thinking when someone presents, is this an acute infectious type problem? Now, if it's an acute infectious type problem, you've normally got symptoms of, and we're all quite familiar with some of the COVID or um, cough cold type symptoms a lot of us get. Some of us will have fever with that. If we're starting to feel much more unwell in general, so we're much more breathless when we walk about, that would be a more significant problem that people would want to see straight away. Sudden onset of feeling breathless doesn't have to be just linked to your lung though or the upper airways it can link in with the heart so it can be uh, an irregular heart rhythm causing that it can be pressure being put on the heart that's allowing a bit of fluid to collect so a heart failure type thing and it can be things like um, clots in the leg if we've been on a long flight and we've developed a swelling of the leg we might suddenly end up with little bits of clots getting into the lungs which tend to cause painlessness breathlessness and um sorry painlessness that's an odd word i i meant a, a localized pain in the chest with breathlessness and um sometimes a cough with that so there's a bit of detective work about um what the bigger picture of 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 the patient symptoms of the context and the time duration and exacerbating and relieving factors. And, and that one about the recent air travel with or without the swollen leg is just such an important one. It's the immobility for several hours yeah. and the dehydration and other things that happen. And of course, there are a lot of um, relatively rarer conditions that can be triggered by a whole manner of different um things for i mean we we often hear about people who have allergies that make them breathless and certain types of asthma will do that but um things like pigeon fancier's lung people who have pigeons and do uh, racing pigeons can often develop a sort of allergic response to the uh, feathers in that sort of uh in the pigeon that make them more sensitized and end up with breathlessness and more cough coffee cheese um, silicon, coal, all sorts of other chemicals can potentially do that. And so quite often as a, as a doctor, if someone's coming in, we might well be asking about what are, what are your hobbies, what are your interests, what are your what jobs have you done? I remember a lot of people who've done things like working in the uh, shipbuilding or electricity um, manufacturing industries have been exposed to quite significant amounts of asbestos over time. Yes, yes. You mentioned asthma, and 
I find that one of the most difficult things to be sure about. If somebody comes in with intermittent shortness of breath or uh, wheezing, and we were all taught that aphorism at medical school, weren't we? All that wheezes is not asthma. So how, how do you go about trying to pin down if somebody is getting those symptoms, whether it's asthma or not? Okay. Um, I think the first thing is that people coming in with symptoms have often been looking it up. Good on them. That's what they should be doing now. I think we should be encouraging that. And they've often been thinking through what they think the problem might be. Um, from the point of view of uh, issues around asthma, primarily what we're looking for is a history that sounds like asthma. That is often someone who has symptoms that are variable, often worse when they exert, can be worse when they feel stressed, often variable and worse at night as well, that is ongoing over a period of time. So you've got your symptoms. Clinically, when people listen in, we will often hear a prolonged, so a long wheeze that is as you breathe out. And that is heard by a stethoscope. It's not normally something you can hear particularly easily halfway across the field, which tends to be <gasps> coming from the throat more than the lungs themselves. So again, there are clinical things we would listen in for. And then as a lot of people would like to do, and as some of us who are doctors think we might be slightly scientific, we might try and do some tests to see if we can find out, none of which are accurate on their own. Tests would be things like lung function. Um, that's a spirometry test, test that takes about half an hour. Tests like fractional exhaled nitric oxide, a measure of the nitric oxide we breathe out, which is higher in people who have inflammation in their airways. Um, things like a peak flow meter that's a small quick measure of how efficient the lungs are and there are certain blood tests that can help to determine the likelihood of allergic areas there so as ever it's not as simple as just looking it up on the internet and having the answer but you mentioned um a lot of people get short of breath when they're stressed but of course some people with panic attacks will get acutely short of breath as a result of anxiety, won't they? And, and that must be difficult to tell apart sometimes. And again, I think that challenges a lot of clinicians a lot of the time. One of the um, issues that happens when we feel uh, breathless is it isn't always under our control. And as much as we'd like to be in control of things, that doesn't always work. So, and I, I often think about this a bit like driving a car. When we start to drive a car, we're taught how to drive and we all do everything properly. We look in mirrors, we signal with the indicator, and then we pull out safely and we keep to the speed limit and all those other things. And we hold our hand on the steering wheel in the right way. When we've been doing it for a bit, we sometimes start to cut corners and those corners get ingrained. What can have often happen in people who... Um, are under pressure, be that because of their mental health, because they've injured a rib, because they're in pain, because they've had an infection, is they adapt the way they breathe. And it's not something they're doing consciously. They're not planning to breathe differently. They just start to find it's easier because it hurts when I breathe in, if I just breathe in with nice shallow breaths. When they're doing that, what happens is as they recover and they try to get back to what they're doing before, their body has been trained to take shallow breaths. And therefore, once they start to try and get back to that normal activity, they feel unusually breathless, and that starts to worry them again. There must be something going on. 
deep it, sort of unpicking that is quite complex takes a bit of time and takes a bit of thinking about our physio colleagues are probably the best at being able to do that but it, i think it's important that any clinician involved in helping people doctors nurses others involved in normal care for people with potential lung problems are aware of that and i think equally so it's really important that people who've had a lung or um, mental health problem are thinking i'm bound to get some problems with my breathing that is part of normality i might need to get a bit of help to get it sorted how interesting so there's a psychological aspect uh, in many cases now th steve thinking more about um um, the common respiratory issues such as asthma and COPD. I heard you mention recently triple therapy. Now, triple therapy, as I know it, is thinking about a, a, a bacteria in the gut and uh, called H. pylori, and it's a couple of antibiotics and something to switch off the acid. But what do you mean by triple therapy as referring to respiratory disease or illnesses, and, and which ones does it apply to? Okay, um, triple therapy... To me, I've been using in a slightly different way. In um, the respiratory world, one of the treatments are three separate types of inhaled drug that a lot of people will use for that. And that is what a lot of people talk about as triple therapy. What I wanted to do was take that slightly out of context and make sure, though the drugs are effective, that every single patient had the best triple therapy that was possible. And the best treatment for pe certainly people with COPD, but also people with other lung problems is number one, to help with, um, to get help if you are smoking with professional advice and some of the medications available, far more effective than any other intervention. So number one, let's help people to stop smoking. Most people do. Most of the research suggests 90%, if given the choice, wouldn't be smoking. We need to make an impact there. Number two, we know that some of the vaccines that are available, pneumococcal influenza and COVID, dramatically reduce the severity of infections that people will get. Uh, I could go into that in a bit more detail, but it really does make a big difference. And finally, pulmonary rehabilitation, odd word, making your lungs able to look after you better, getting them as fit as they can be, is a key factor in helping that. So to me, the triple therapy is smoking, immunization and getting your lungs fitter brilliant I, th I think that's really good advice coming back to the inhalers and the issue of making people are on uh, are on the right inhalers I, I i always find that difficult because people know about relievers and preventers okay i think the, the first thing is that we have lots of inhalers um there's more than 135 available at the moment different um, options that are available and it's important that clinicians and patients are using the ones that are most suitable uh, number two using an inhaler can be tricky and a lot of people even healthcare professionals trying to use them don't use them properly and what we want to do is make sure if you're going to use the inhaler that it's actually doing its job and getting into where it's supposed to be so get using that inhaler effectively to get it in is very important i think the third area on that is around discussion between a clinician and the person with lung disease about their inhalers because we know from research that there are many reasons why people use one type of inhaler in preference to another and quite often, some of the thinking behind that doesn't fit in with really good science that we've got. 
Um, so we know that normal dose inhaled corticosteroids are safe for 30 or 40 years from the age of five onwards without having any long-term impact on the body. Really well studied. And certainly in the studies in the 20s, 30-year-olds, again, another 30, 40 years of evidence now has accrued. So we're pretty confident with that. We also know that people who use lots of reliever medication will actually often make their symptoms worse because it makes the airways quite uh, irritable and quite uh, twitchy. So people who, so if I got 100 people who had didn't have any lung disease and gave them a traditional blue inhaler, about 80 of those people, if they'd use that inhaler two or three times a week over two or three weeks, would find when they tried to exert, they got more wheezy. When they went into a smoky or perfumey atmosphere, their airways seemed to be clamping down again. And when they went into, when they felt more stressed, they'd often find that their airways were clamping down. That's normal people. And that's the effect the drug will have. Exactly the same if you have asthma or other problems, the salbutamol, the blue inhalers, the immediate reliever inhalers, can actually cause um, a condition called bronchial hyperresponsiveness. The airways get more twitchy. So there's lots we should be doing to help people to understand what the benefits of the medication are and how we can get them to work well. Most professional sports people use their preventer inhaler really well and extremely rarely use a reliever, the blue inhaler. Fascinating. And what you're describing is almost the respiratory equivalent of what we see in mental health, where if you take tablets to make you less anxious, there's kind of a rebound and you pay the price later. Yeah. Yes, it's sad that the the um, systematic review for that, so a collection of all the trials put together, about 20 of them, was, was done by uh, Professor Richard Beasley, who's still working now, but he produced it in 1999. And because those 1920 trials all showed the same thing, we would never be able to replicate it because the evidence is so strong. It would be unethical to do that trial again, but it seems to have been forgotten by a lot of people. Brilliant. That's really helpful. Steve, can I ask you to be controversial? Um, there's been a lot in the press recently about vaping. And I know it's safer than cigarettes, but you know, now it's been marketed at children's so on. What do you feel about the health risks of vaping? What what does the evidence tell us? Right. Um, I think there's there's three or four strands to go for that. I think, and I'll try and not give my personal view, I'll try and give a balanced view from what I see from a lot of other organizations and bodies. I think, number one, Public Health England quite rightly say, if you're smoking, then actually vaping appears at the moment to be safer. So if you can convert from a, a cigarette to vaping, that may well be beneficial for you. Number two, most of the um, respiratory societies in the world, the European, the American, the British um, lung societies, all suggest that it's not normal to be breathing in um, air that's at about 60 degrees, which you're doing when you're vaping. And quite a few bits of the science trials have shown changes in the lungs that cause issues there. So although there are none of the carcinogens and the uh, thrombotic type problems, so the things that cause cancer or the things that might cause clots in the, uh, in the vaping that we are aware of, nor the things that might damage the lungs that cause COPD, 
We aren't aware of what that long-term implication may be at the moment. And you may remember just before the pandemic, there was a problem in America where quite a lot of people were dying from a type of pneumonia, a lipoid pneumonitis, which was linked into, eventually they found out it was linked into making your own vaping solution from oils and cannabis resin. And it was virtually all those people who had this very severe reaction. So we need to make sure we're using it safely. Should it, what about children? There's a lot more increasing concern globally and with Public Health England as well about children be, and advertising about vaping to them because that may be a pathway into people not only vaping persistently and the long-term potential implications of that, but moving towards um, cigarette smoking as well. Thank you. That's really fascinating. Um, I'm always fascinated, and certainly was as a GP, um, by what makes people smoke. And it, I came to the conclusion that adults smoke because it works. Why does it work? Um, well, it's no longer cool to suck suck your thumb after the age of 12. Why do you suck the thumb? Because there isn't a breast available, because it's a deep reflex from mammalian physiology as infants. And actually, there's lots of parasympathetic calm, as well as if you're smoking in the workplace, you would have to go out of the office, so there's exercise and, and things. So I, I found myself in the very awkward and uncomfortable position of having no objections. Um, audience, please listen. This is ironic having no objections to the use of cigarettes because the only problem comes when you light them. <laughs> I may be causing controversy there. Peter. And I think you've, um, I would also add in that nicotine is highly addictive. Um, and of course, the nicotine levels in vaping can be even higher than in cigarettes. So even if there isn't that health risk, we're, we're at risk of getting addicted to, to a substance, aren't we? And I've known people who've been able to come off heroin, but can't come off nicotine. I don't yep. know what the science tells us there, Steve. Yeah, I, I, I remember very vividly a study that I don't think would get past the ethics committees in the UK, but was performed in the US about 15 years ago, uh, where they encouraged um, prisoners to stop smoking and help them to stop smoking. And then they gave them a cigarette back to see how much impact it had on uh, various receptors when they were scanning them. And they worked out that if you'd stop smoking for a period of three to six months, two cigarettes was probably all you needed to get hooked again. Nicotine was so potent. Once it came back into your life, you were there. It was your, no, it had taken control of you again. And so I think in a way to me, that sort of message means we have, you know, there are times where doctors have been seen advertising smoking. Nurses have been seen on pictures saying, this is the best cigarette for you. It's nice and gentle, all that sort of stuff. It's been only relatively recently that the government have been, strategically trying to reduce smoking because of its long-term implications. I don't think we can blame a large proportion of society who have ended up being pushed and pulled and put and moved towards having cigarettes. And I don't think we should underestimate the complexity and challenge in helping them to come off. Absolutely. That's really interesting. We've got a few minutes left or moving towards the end. Any top tips that you'd like to give for clinicians who are our listeners? Any top tips for our listeners who might be patients at some point, other than what you've already said, Steve? Okay. Um, I think I think from a clinician's point of view, um, I think, and I, we've hinted at bits of this, um, lots of people ended up smoking in society. 
not everyone who smoked developed lung problems. Some might have developed cancer, some might have developed heart disease. But please don't stigmatise people who happen to have smoked at some point and, and say it must be their fault because society was smoking. They were one of the unfortunate ones for reasons we don't know that appear to have developed a problem in that sort of zone. I think the second thing I would be saying to clinicians is if you feel very breathless, and just remember when you felt very breathless and you don't have control over that, you are bound to have issues with how you deal with that psychologically. And if you go on with that same psychological theme, um, if try coughing in a supermarket for five minutes and see what response you get from people nowadays. Sometimes people with lung disease do have quite difficult to control cough. And that, again, can cause a stigma and makes them very nervous about going out. We need to try to make sure that we embrace society and try to minimise that mental health impact and psychological impact. But we also need to reduce those stigmas and health inequalities that are allowing people to be discriminated against when they don't deserve it. That probably works both ways. Hopefully that's worked for both people who are listening in who might have lung disease or other um, long-term problems, but also all the clinicians and managers out there. I think it's absolutely brilliant that you end on the question of not stigmatising because it's such a huge issue. Um, my father, when he was in the forces, was given cigarettes free by the government. So, you know, that was what, that was what this time. And we get we see stigmatisation in respiratory disease because of that. We see it obviously in, in mental health and uh, learning difficulties and dementia. And I've seen it in my own family with a, a family member who got HIV through infected blood and who was hugely stigmatised. So I think that's a really powerful message, whatever the disease. Steve, can I ask you, and we'll put this up in show notes as well, uh, for people who've got established respiratory disease, are there good sites, websites or other resources they can turn to for help? Yeah, yes. I think the two that I would normally go to in the UK would be the NH. If you type in NHS and then your problems or symptoms, you'll normally get NHS advice. Background behind that is it has been checked by healthcare professionals. It's been read by a variety of people to make sure it's scientifically and evidence-based wise is good, but it's also been put into the best English to make it easy to understand. And it's available in a variety of different languages. The other one that's really good in the UK is Asthma and Lung UK, and they will provide good information on a whole variety of respiratory problems. If you're looking at any others, then um, there are things like the uh, action pulmonary fibrosis um, and a variety of other um, charities that deal with some of the conditions that are less common that, again, are really good value. Again, don't forget things like motor neurone disease can present with respiratory problems. And again, um, we have other issues around that. So lots of good information in the UK. Be wary of all the different chat groups that go on. They're not always quite as uh, unbiased as you might think. Steve, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for joining us and all our listeners and Peter and uh, th three of us. I won't say experts. We are. We may all be of a moderate age, and we're all um, um, GPs in Somerset or have been at some point. It's been great fun having you along. Thank you so much indeed. Um, go well with the rest of your day, and to our listeners, go well as well. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Somerset Emotional Wellbeing Podcast. 
The show was hosted by our team of doctors, including Dr. Andrew Tresider, Dr. Peter Bagshaw, and Dr. Sarah Coop. The show was produced by Rob Holmes Music on behalf of the NHS Somerset Integrated Care Board. <laughs>